In this episode, Ryan and I discuss recent market volatility, modified endowment contracts, and charitable giving. We had fun doing so and hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Welcome to the Bank of Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And so it's been a while since we sat down here in the studio because he's a world traveler and I've always got my nose down working. You're the one leaving in like two days. Tomorrow, baby. What? It's just, I think it's something about this time of the year. Taxes are due, so you got to take a vacation. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Taxes are due? What? Well, yeah, I guess I have an extension, but it's about that time. May, uh, right? April, May. Gonna wait till the last minute to pay? I didn't, I mean, I don't mind that, certainly, but no, it's the account that takes forever. What? I'm like, get it done so we can get this over with so I can go do other things. But now, look, there's a lot of CPAs that listen and. Are there? Are there? Uh, yes. Well, at least a few. There's some I CPAs might be in the market. Listen. All right, so Mr. Griggs is in the market for a competent CPA. And if you have a, more than a cursory knowledge of life insurance, it may be helpful. Or if you're not opposed to life insurance, it could be helpful. Yeah. Not that it has to be you know life insurance focused, but um, and we're going to talk about life insurance today. <laughs> imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. Look, uh, I pay my fair share i pay more than my fair share in taxes and i don't want to pay one day early yeah there is no fair share right the thief doesn't oh, come along break and that like, take a fair amount <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> here fair rob me but only take a little please or whatever you know i yeah can keep without you know being thrown into the gulag uh okay so look yeah tax time the cpa's you know, there's like five tax deadlines throughout the year, right? Depending on the entity and other whatever. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like all the work. And it, listen, I got nothing but love for the competent CPAs. Um, but it seems like all the work gets done like right two days before the due dates and 30 days after the due dates. <laughs> yeah. And I would just like a little bit more of a proactive kind of stance. I don't want to cut corners. Don't get me wrong, but you know, a little actual tax planning, you know. Yeah, well, you know, you can you can fall off the deep end. And there know. is the danger because then so the first thing that she tells me is, well, we were assuming a SEP contribution. So there's got to be some kind of tax qualified game. And I'm like, no, no, get that off of there. So th- th- there is a limit to it. But, at, which is what we were talking about earlier, is I wind up at the idea of like, okay, well maybe the what, what I'm looking for doesn't exist. And maybe people need to be taught to take a certain perspective on tax planning and maybe that that's, maybe what I want isn't out there. That could be the case. Yeah, it's because not Because we were looking- fair tax and it doesn't exist. So yeah, what you want doesn't exist. I mean, fundamentally, but- well, uh, someone with the right attitude who is like, but, and, and then the market, the market's such a big part of it. Cause all the CPA, we were looking at this letter here that we won't name the person who sells. Well, let me, yeah, let me give it a back, uh, a background of that. Okay. Cause I received a, an email, a nice email from a, a financial advisor out in California, Murph. Thanks for the email. And he's like, James, you really got to check out this June, 2022 newsletter from a prominent 
a CPA trainer in the financial industry. Published author, speaker. Yes. I mean, you know, $50,000 a day or whatever. Yeah. To, to Recognizable speak. name. In the- yes. And, and uh, no disparagement there. But, and he talks about IBC is where that are. And why the gentleman emailed me, he said, look, he talks about, there's a, a positive comment or good comments about the IBC method in the newsletter. But, it, but but before we get into that, the the CPA, the tax preparers, they typically um, feel like they must give you a tax break today, hence the qualified plans. Right. Right? I mean, I, how many times have you heard a prospective client, a colleague, or um, even a client, you know, well, I was approached by a tax planner, and they said that they could give me, a you know, the equivalent of a 30 Eight percent rate of return, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, break that down for me because I already knew what they were talking about, and I don't know everything. But it's like, oh, well, if I give you a tax deduction today above the SEP, the SEP's limited to fifty grand. Like, and I'm talking like a cash balance plan, something uh-huh. like that, which we we can talk about later. But no, that is not like a thirty eight percent rate of return yeah. because I get a tax deduction today, making all these contributions that are laden. With deadlines, filing days. Filing, yeah. Management. And I'm going to push my tax liability off into the unknown future. The future is unknown, and the tax brackets in the future are unknown. Yeah, but you're going you're gonna to retire, and you're going to be in a lower tax bracket. Says who? Yeah. Don't put that on me. No. So it's always, you know, here, make a contribution today to this plan or that plan, and you get a tax deduction today. I mean, that... It's very common in the tax preparers yeah. world. And it's not like a true deduction. It's deferral. That's what it is. Yeah. We use the same word to mean two different things. Like a business expense can be deducted for tax preparation purposes. That does not create a liability in the future. Whereas a contribution to a plan, you use the same word, deduction. Yeah. But you create a liability in the future. Yeah. Well, anything not to pay the tax today, sir. Yeah, I think sometimes, and then I know there's like a, there's always, well, we're talking about fi- financial stuff, you know, there's got to be some sort of tax advantage. And there is, I mean, cash value grows with, uninterrupted with tax so long as the policy stays in force. There's nothing, there, a taxable event isn't triggered so long as proper steps are taken to prevent the modified endowment contract tax status from occurring, then all that will stay that way. And if managed properly, then yes, you can have internal growth that occurs in a tax free technically tax deferred environment and then you can get to the money on a tax free basis via a policy loan or surrenders up to the basis or dividends up to the basis what have you that's all is true and that's good but it's not like it's not a tax game it's not that we're gonna go find a tax loophole like like this article talks about it's a tax loophole right? life insurance is a tax oh, okay. loophole well, let's drag it but then i appreciate <laughs> you, the words that you're using because they're correct right and this article, I mean, fair enough. The 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 writer who's a an, a contributor to this newsletter, I mean, no disparagement. You know, I want to be light and polite here, but the words, um, pretty familiar. There's nothing original here. Yeah. All of the verbiage is is re rehashed and rephrased, and some of it's just not right. 
You know, he talks about the perfect investment. You know, we look at the most cited attributes for retirement planning strategies in a quote-unquote perfect investment. There is one tool or strategy that comes closest. And it's always a tool, you know, another tool in your toolbox for the advisor. The the arrow in the quiver. Yeah. (laughs) And then the uh, perfect investment. I don't know how many times we've talked about it. Life insurance is not an investment. Now, if you buy variable universal life, that can be considered an investment because you have investments wrapped up in that life insurance contract. Um, which I've got nothing positive to say about. But this is this is completely taken from Carlos Laura's mm-hmm. work from years ago. The uh, 17 or 18 characteristics of the perfect investment. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's an extent to which like just getting the message out. I mean, that, that's a good thing, right? Maybe yes. some people are going to be exposed that yes. otherwise wouldn't have. Yes. I mean, it's almost like the infinite banking concept, becoming your own banker is, is uh, coming more mainstream because. Oh, that know, gives me people chills. People put IBC <laughs> together. I don't know. Um, you know, he, he goes on in an IBC design model, investors are reverse engineering the contract benefits to maximize the cash value component and minimize the death benefit component within the limits of keeping all of the contract tax benefits, which is avoiding a mech. Mm-hmm. But so it's the investor that's doing this. No. And then the article goes yeah. on to talk about savers in tax qualified plans. It's the reverse. The individual paying a premium into dividend paying life insurance is the saver. The person putting money into the market through qualified plans is the investor. One has a risk of loss. The other does not. Yeah. I mean, different words for legitimate differences in dynamics or the meaning of things consequences which is why you think you'd have different words if the meaning is different right i mean that's like the purpose well you hold on you bring up this mech thing i don't want to get sidetracked too much from this but i had a, it just occurred to me and in, in our short preparation time ahead of it I, so i'm trying this out on you live okay oh great right. <laughs> great <laughs> no, i want to know what you think about it because uh, so the, there's the mechanic series whole life insurance mechanic series that i did and part of that is a f- pretty lengthy discussion of term writers mm-hmm. and term and we can go through all the caveats term isn't required to do ibc style whole life but it's often used can be used there is a place for the right person uh however there's not all there's not just one type of term right there's different type there's annually renewing we've talked about these blended pua long dated level term okay 10 year 15 year 20-year, 30-year term. Yep. Yep, yep. But then, and this didn't occur to me until after I put the series out, and I don't think I've explicitly said this or made any reference to it at all, but I think sometimes people can get the... A comment came to mind that was from months ago about this, where someone was talking... It was the 1090 thing, and someone was talking about how, well, they've got term on there, so they're not going to have a mech. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so all of this is kind of coming at the same time. And it occurs to me that maybe I've given the impression, not on purpose, that if the policy has a term rider, that a mech cannot ever happen. 
And that's not true. Not true. And I think that, so first of all, one, nobody talks about this. So I, I think it should be clarified. But that, you know, we, okay, so that what I would normally tell someone is, a modified endowment contract tax status can be triggered when cash va- is triggered when cash value rises too quickly relative to the death benefit. And so one thing that's done to allow for substantial cash value accumulation over a long period of time while retaining the non-MEC status is to increase the death benefit. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you increase the death benefit? Well, of course, with term. That's what term is. It's extra death benefit. Different types, different ways of doing that. Some better, some not so great. But that's the entire. That's the purpose. Okay, well, does doing that, does adding that additional death benefit mean that for sure, guaranteed, the whole life policy will never be a mech? No. And the answer is no. Yeah. Okay, so this is what came to mind. Is this what, is this this what is you're going to try out on me live? This is, is, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. This is the word. Mech resilience. Mech resilient. Resilience. Uh, resilience. Yeah. So, some, so uh, meaning, hold on, meaning some policy structures, some premium structures that are relatively more mech resilient and others that are less so. Obviously, something like a 10, maybe it's not obvious, something like a 1090 is not so resilient. There's a lot of, we've talked about the idea of fragility in the structure of a policy before, where the where the meaningful outcome, the, the negative outcome of this fragile structure would be a mech or would be things that you have to do to continue to retain the non-mech status that you didn't think you were going to do otherwise, right. right? Lower the PUA or something. Whereas policies with more to the base and 7702 comes into this mm-hmm. indirectly, but policies with more to the base, let's say a 40, 60, 50, 50, uh, to my mind, at least this literally came up on a call with a call. We were like an hour and 10 in and we we're just talking about premium structure. And I'm like, so in a sense, there's a, because it just it started occur to me lately that maybe I'm giving the impression that a term writer fixes everything. So to him, I'm like, look, just because we're doing term, like, uh, great, okay. we can yeah. accentuate cash value growth early on. That's not. Is he, he was particularly conservative. I mean, just didn't want to cause tax problems, which is none of us want to do. And so it kind of hit me that well, maybe I've not been there. Could so uh, we kind of calibrate. Right? There can be a case where dividends in the future are not as high as they were illustrated to be at the outset. And therefore the PUA that comes from the dividend could be less, which means that less death benefit was purchased from yeah, the PUA that, from yeah, the dividend. Right. So the dividend, when it's paid into the PUA, which is correct, it purchases death benefit. Yes. Right? So like uh you know, I don't know the ratios, and it really depends on your age, too. The ratios decrease. Like, if I pay a dollar to the PUA, and I'm 20, and I'm super preferred, it's going to buy 3 or $4 in death benefit. Well, if you're 60, and you pay a dollar to the PUA, it's only going to buy one, 1.5 times in death benefit. This is very important. The dividend also purchases death benefit when it's applied to the PUA. So, what you're saying is, and, I don't, and I'm not trying to break this down, but I don't. this is very important. If the death benefit doesn't continue to rise because the dividends is reduced in the future, and or or in addition to that, if you don't pay the PUA that's scheduled or yes. illustrated, yes. then the death benefit is not being purchased, right? And so that will increase the fragility and increase the probability, absolutely the possibility of causing a mech in the future. 
Right? Yeah. To me, it has to be the case. So it, Absolutely. And it gets into like, okay, well, how exactly do we know if a mech is happening? And so you might hear something called the seven pay test, right? The, the broad idea is that the U.S. federal government and all their wisdom don't want you to have too much money around. And so they want to restrict how much capital you can generate in the form of cash value and dividend paying whole life. The whole idea is that you get too much too quickly and then you're not paying enough income tax and Uncle Sam's getting shafted because they never do that to you, right? But And, and it's really a loophole. And as a loophole, which yeah. I'm bringing that up because in the article, the individual says is one of the last loopholes left. And it's yeah. like, I'm like, I'm turning green when I read stuff yeah. like that. OK, sorry. Can be a loophole if you predate the thing that you're a loophole through. Like, oh, uh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but the buzzword sounds right. So it's a loophole. Who doesn't want a loophole when it comes to taxes? Mm, yeah. I don't get away with something. OK, OK. Um, so we go. We go through all of this. Okay, so what causes the mech? So too much cash value, too quickly. Can't have government doesn't want you to have too much money. And so the way that the government throttles the allowable pace of cash value generation is by putting limitations on, in a sense, regulating, in a sense, price fixing. It's a form of price it's fixing. It's absolutely price fixing. That where because the again the death benefit cash value is what the death benefit's worth today right net present value of the death benefit okay and a mech is a, a, a policy is a mech if the death benefit can be fully paid for in the first seven years that's where we get the term seven pay test right the amount of premiums paid in a given seven year period certain seven-year periods, which we get into that too. The, the amount of premium paid in a seven-year period cannot be sufficient to fully pay for the death benefit. This is why you can't reduce pay up or RPU a policy prior to the seventh year, prior to the end of the seventh year, right? Because if you could, that policy would automatically be a met because yeah. that would be admitting that we yeah. that it, there is enough premium to pay for the amount of death benefit. Uh, okay, and then it's important to see how regulating that relationship between when the death benefit can be paid up has implications for, for cash value, right? It's important to see the relationship there because if I can fully pay for the death benefit in a shorter time period, well then that is the inverse of that statement. But like in a sense, the mirror image of that statement is saying that I'm generating more worth in the death benefit sooner than I otherwise would, right? If I, like, if I go buy a TV from, Walmart for a thousand dollars and I take that home. Well, I, I fully, I fully paid for the, the TV, right? The TV's paid up from the, from Walmart's perspective. And it, to me, it's a fully paid for. And I take that home. Well, what's the TV worth the next day? Immediately, right? The next following day. Well, it's, it's what I paid for because I could go back and get a refund. Mm -hmm. Right. So the worth of it is what I just paid in something that is fully paid up in a day. So if I could fully pay for or make my death benefit fully paid up in a day, then what I paid for it would be what the death benefit's worth. In other words, I would generate dollar for dollar cash value. And then if you got a dividend at the end of the year, it's even more. Okay. So by, so Congress, by regulating the relationship between for over how long it must take at a minimum for this death benefit to be paid up can indirectly affect how much cash value you generate. Okay. That's the whole framework for the modified endowment contract. And okay. So if that's the setup, then in that context, 
in what ways could a policy be considered more likely to violate those rules? And in what ways could it be considered less likely to violate those rules? And I, it kind of gets into like, okay, well, when does this seven year time period occur? Right. There's certainly this testing period, right? We can't pay for the death benefit in full in a seven year period. Well, what seven year period? Well, certainly the first seven year period, right? The first seven years. The initial seven pay test. Yeah. The initial. Initial. Well, then there's an, then there's a question of how about future seven year periods? What? You mean the met testing continues internally? Yeah. The life insurance company and the disclosure on the illustration says, as illustrated, this policy is not a met. As illustrated, As yeah. Illustrated, yeah. Oh, let me, yeah, yeah. Great point. Right. Let me, let me go back to the ten ninety. Uh-huh. You know, oh, we've got this death benefit. I'm talking about the blended PUA riders that that are used commonly on the ten ninety construct, or, or any other construct, right? When you talk about the blended PUA, and and to be clear, you know, Ryan has uh, written and and passionately spoke about blended PUAs um, and just because there's a blended PUA doesn't make the policy inherently bad and you know not fixable and that is the only problem <clears throat> um, it's not good I'll say that but that's not the only problem Mm-mm. you know uh, because that you know the blended PUA you're, there are several different ways you could do that you know the decreasing term that's purchased for or with the dividend and PUA surrenders there could also be just a level term you know we're going to we're going to buy you know a, a particular death benefit for a 7 year time period right okay well what happens at the end of that 7 year time period it's going to come down or you're going to have to pay more to keep it well if it comes down then you're 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 it's either going to be a mech or you have to reduce your premium. So here's the largest problem in my opinion. I mean, it's like, how many problems can you put on one product and hope nothing goes wrong? Ask Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll talk about Wall Street too. I'm just saying that the base being so small is the largest problem in there, right? I mean, it's because if I have the ability to pay $100,000 in premium and I have a $10,000 base in year 8, 9, 10, or 11, you know, I've got to reduce that uh, premium to $10,000. But I've had the ability, if I've had the legitimate ability to pay $100,000 premium up into that time point where the death benefit and the premium must reduce, it's like, that's completely flawed thinking. Mm-hmm. So now I'm forced into going into underwriting again if I want to continue the ability, the enjoyment of paying $100,000 premium. So the blended PUA is inherently has its own issues. Worse than that is the small base. And I mean, mm-hmm. you're, and you're, mm-hmm. you're mentioning different structures. I talked to an individual in uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was a, a comment that he had heard from somebody so it's hearsay right but he had heard and like it's uh and he repeated what he heard like it is common knowledge and the way it's like well somebody said well james doesn't build policy 70 30 anymore like what what does that mean like that's what I, that's how i build policy 730 70 30 you know and it's like where'd you hear that and it's like i wish where did people wouldn't uh so look, if, and I've said it before, I'm going to continue to say it, if there is one size fits all, it's probably not good for you. Yeah. So, and the base thing, so a couple of things, the base is so small and that, 
it, it, from the mech perspective, like remember what I just said is that what Congress was trying to prevent you from doing is generating too much cash value too quickly, right? If you can pay for the death benefit in full soon, right away, ostensibly on day one, well, that that is the, the excessive cash value generation that Congress is trying to keep you from doing. Okay, well, what's happening in a 1090 structure? Well, keep going, 595. What's happening in that structure? Sooner. We're dang near doing a single pay policy, right? It's everything we can to skirt around. And then the blended term PUA, I think that there's, I don't think it's a coincidence that the 1090 contracts that we see all have either annually renewing term or a blended term PUA rider. Of course not. I think in order to get enough death benefit in year one in a manner that allows for such a high percentage of PUA for such tremendous cash value growth, it's got to be term that's priced annually. Yes. Because if it was term that was priced longer, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the premium for that amount of death benefit would be outrageous. It would be a huge amount of term premium relative to the base, relative to the PUA. You'd end up sacrificing the alleged efficiency you were trying to pursue. And so you can't use, I really think this is why this is happening. You can't use a long dated level term. It's got to be the bl the blended or the one some version of one year term or maybe you know some companies will say well the, there's no term blended ter blended or term PUA or term rider but the dividend is going to go back into one year term and we're going to sneak it in that way right I think that has to be the way a 1090 can get done while minimize or while yeah. uh, moderating the term cost <clears throat> well yeah I mean I hear what you're saying however you can use a 10 or 20 year term with some companies and get to a 96, 97. And drop the term at some point? Yes. Then the question becomes this. <laughs> the continued mech testing. And then two, as it, you can illustrate that way that it's a non-mech. Mm -hmm. right, then what is the client going to do between here and there? Not that. The end of the 10 or the 20 year period. Well, why not? Because it's flawed thinking. See, if I have to, I mean, over and over and over and over. Nelson said, think long range. Don't be afraid to capitalize. Be honest. Don't steal the peas. And don't do business with banks other than savings or checking. And then rethink your thinking. That is flawed thinking. A 1090, 95-10, the focus on the base ratio is flawed thinking. Continued. Okay. And why are you, I mean, am I, check my thinking here. I'm afraid, I'm, number one, I'm not thinking long range. If I have right. to see, you know, uh, all the cash value in year one, I am not thinking long range. Right. And then most of the time, like I said earlier, if you have the ability to pay that high premium, why would you want to drop it or right. reduce it in the seventh or eighth year when that policy is just hitting its 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 exponential curve? Right. Okay. I am afraid to pay a premium as well. So I'm not thinking right. long range and I am afraid to pay a premium if I have to access it. And then do you really have the ability to pay that premium, that high premium as illustrated, you know, for the seven years? Or did you have to go get a HELOC, leverage all your other assets or whatever through the third party bank 
to make that premium. Then yeah. you're going to do a cash out refire or whatever in the next couple of years. I mean, the things that I see that creates those, it's like the flawed thinking is solid throughout the whole yeah. process and the design. And you know what just occurred to me? Well, is- wait, wait. Let me say, too, that you're not going to practice honest banking either because you're already afraid to pay a premium. You're mm. sure as hell not going to repay a loan. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So what what occurred is that okay so these guys in the 80s right 1984 tax reform gets done yeah some sort of real estate major real estate deduction evaporate what a shock right the deductions continue to be eliminated yeah, the tax shelters yeah and so the context is that you know the the, the wealthy people the evil wealthy people we're all going to we're all going and getting particularly single pay whole life right lupo and and that rich. was generating this whole bunch of cash value and because interest rates were so high they could illustrate at these high and get and offer a guarantee of such a high rate of return so the cash values looked phenomenal but and, and then of course so then the term promoters a.o williams and the people come wall in, street the, yeah veneta then and then so it's easy for me especially as us as a ibc type people to be like okay well of course the the colluding parties were wrong and they just wanted to eliminate the competition with coercion rather than outcompete on product and service. And that's true. However, I think it's also true that the guys who were just going and getting single pay whole life. Well, I wonder about the propriety of that. Like it's still, there's a sense in which that is still a tax game, right? The whole aid, the whole, uh, the situation pre mech was uh, ostensibly around these whole single pay products was a tax game. They were looking for one tax loop. One. I tax. don't know that to be true. That's what you read. That's, That's what, you, what read. you hear. I don't. I don't. I do not. I wasn't licensed, and you know, I wasn't licensed until 1991. I did some insurance work in 86, 80, somewhere, somewhere along there. But I, I've not seen it. I know. Right? <laughs> I've not seen these people that are looking for the tax loophole. I haven't. I haven't met these men because it was quoted back then too. Oh, you pay a hundred thousand dollars single premium in 1980. Okay. Yeah. 1984. All right. And then and then it pays a dividend. Oh, and then you get a divorce. And then so, you know, you go and get $110,000 back. These are great stories by Wall Street. These yeah. are great okay, stories by enough. the term promoters. I've not met these people. They, I'm not saying they don't exist, but the majority of the purchasers of single premium life were not looking for a tax loophole. And isn't it a coinky dink that, oh, the... The tax uh, shelters are ending, and oh, we're going to shred life insurance and limit what you can pay into the premium, and limit the the tax enjoyment that you do or did have. And then shortly after all that, here comes the qualified plans, the Keo plan, the Keo plan, the four hundred one k. Don't put it there, life insurance. Then the bond promoters. We can't even do what the life insurance companies are doing. The term promoters. It's a tax loophole for the rich. And then here comes the Keo plan. It's not a coincidence. This timeline didn't just happen naturally. The rat occur. is being guided through the maze. <laughs> oh my gosh! And I'm telling you, the 7702 slipped in on December 27th yeah. of 2020, I believe. No, 2019. No, yeah, 2020. Yeah, 2020. 2020. December two. 27th, the tax. Uh, Appropriations Bill. Consolidated Appropriations Act. Thank you. Consolidated Appropriations Act. December 27th. Oh, here's a new interest rate the life insurance companies must use to determine a MEC. Price fixing. And you've got, uh, yeah, till January 1 
of 2022 <laughs> to make that happen. So, and, and I'm not, uh, I'm married to my wife. I'm not married to the life insurance company. You know, but I understand that it costs a life insurance company is about a million dollars per product to go through all of the regulations and the all of the 50 states and the, to get it approved. A million dollars. Do all their work, right? A million dollars. So whatever project they had, you know, maybe uh, upgrading their their operating system so they could be more efficient in processing loans, processing applications. All of that had to be tabled to comply with this edict from the federal government. Okay, now, and then what is the result of that? The death benefits is shredded by an average of 40% in whole life. Here I pay a $10,000 premium, maybe at about $300,000 prior to 7702 change. Now it buys $170,000. Who benefits from that? The life insurance companies. Oh, well, what's going on in the life insurance industry that we've talked about? Barry Dock and I spoke about. He's writing, he's updating his second or third book on this. The hedge funds and the private equity groups that are, that are gobbling up the life insurance companies, just like in the mid to late 80s, this is not happening in a vacuum. And to sit here and think, oh, yeah, this is just happening. It's a natural occurrence is hogwash. So yeah. it does matter who you own and where you put your money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're saying on Barry to finish that revision. Yeah, Barry, come on, get get it done, sir. Get it out in public. You know, I mean, I, I, I promise, you know, in that first book, his first book, Pirates of Manhattan, if you haven't read it, you need to read his book, Pirates of Manhattan yeah. 1. Uh, I don't remember the subtitle, but it was, you know, the Pirates of Manhattan. They're talking about Wall Street, right? And then uh, Pirates of Manhattan 2. And then, and guaranteed, then guaranteed income. income. When he wrote the first Powers of Manhattan, I mean, there was about, it, we were at a think tank, one of the original think tanks that R. Nelson Nash had hosted uh, before it was the Nelson Nash Institute, and he was a presenter. I mean, Nelson Nash funded that project, and I can say that because Barry has said it, and he's told me I could say that. That book wouldn't have happened without Nelson Nash. Yeah. Say that slower. That Nelson book Nash. would not have happened without Nelson Nash. Nelson Nash gave him a loan, and I'll guarantee you that came from policy loans that Nelson Nash himself had owned. Yeah, it's the Pirates of Manhattan systematically plundering the American consumer and how to protect against it. Systematically plundering the American consumer and how to protect against it. We thought... We as a collective group, I don't want to speak for the whole group. There are conversations in the room at that NNI or at that Nelson Nash think tank. There was probably 12 or 13 of us. And we were like looking around because the book hadn't been written. Barry Dyke was presenting and he was sharing with us what he's putting in the book and all the research that he was doing. We looked around and, and, and dang near took bets whether the guy would be alive in two years. <laughs> yeah. So what's the, uh, what's the, uh, on his second? Pirates of Manhattan, the subtitle. Uh, I'll find it here. Highway to Serfdom. I think that is actually it. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to find on his website because on Amazon, they're like 50 bucks. But I know he sells them on his own website. Yeah, you can go to this Barry website, bankingwithlife.com, and get the full package, oh, and we'll right. give you, you a deal. Yeah. Anyway. No, that's right. I'm glad you stay on him. Anyway, what I was saying earlier, okay, so about maybe it is the case, and I'm – I'm willing to believe for the sake of argument that it's a Wall Street myth that 
people were looking around for tax shelters when buying single premium homes. When's the last time you believe whatever Wall Street said? It's I know, but it, my, follow me here. The, okay. My point is that it doesn't matter. My point is that that caricature of thinking that I'm going to use life insurance to play a tax game. Maybe it, that was not what people were doing in the 80s. By the way, if they were doing it, I don't care. Like, if you can get a tax break, you get a tax break. But it's the same kind of thinking. It's the continuation of the thinking today with 1090. Absolutely. It's I'm gonna I'm gonna get I'm gonna get away with something. It, absolutely. Yeah. And then we're gonna use uh, like fine-tuned, allegedly fine-tuned, special financial writers products to get it done. And so you mentioned that the, one of the key problems, the key problem with the 1090 is the minimization of the base. And like, I will say this too, like, so for, for people in the eighties, like if paying a pre, if, if a single pay product was good, if paying a premium once is a good thing, why wouldn't you want to keep paying it? Why wouldn't you okay. want to buy a single premium so policy what, every year? To the extent that you could. Yes. Right. You'd run out of insurability. You'd run out of insurability. Yeah. And so one thing that I noted happened, so maybe it, there was a, a statistically significantly higher uh, rate of acquisition of single pay whole life after the elimination of these real estate loopholes sure. in 84. So I think that there may there may well be a lot of it that you had you know high level advisors telling their high net worth clients, yep, that loophole's gone. Here, go buy insurance. Yeah, it's probably the guys on Wall Street that were doing it. And then when, once they had theirs issued and their insurability filled up, they're, then they're like whining to Congress. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, but my thing is that, okay, so if that's, if that's a good idea, then if it's a good idea to debate, to do single pay, why not get a, a, a non-single pay? Why not get an ordinary whole life paid up at a hundred or what have you? It's longer term oriented. You don't have as much cash value growth right away. And it's also superior in the, you, you say, oh, go, go get a single pay every year. Okay. Well, if you can, right. So locking in, it's a lot of the same but, it's, but my point is, it's a lot of the same principles. It's like, if it's good to have high cash value because of a premium payment in the first year, it's good in later years. And it might be a good idea to lock in the ability to do that for as long as possible, especially in this environment where death benefits changing and, the, and the, there's ever more encroachment upon the opportunity to get insurance in the first place. Uh yeah, so just to me, it just seems like a content like this. The 1090 stuff. It seems like a continuation of the same thinking. I think they're it's it's way too like playing footsie with the IRS kind of deal. And it it's not even that. It's a question of either you get great benefits from a overall capital and tax perspective, or you do IBC in a long term oriented fashion. Like it's not a either or thing. Like in the longer term oriented method everything's better everything's better premium is payable for longer death benefits are higher cash values are bigger everything's better there's less financial and medical underwriting risk for future policies like relative to your ability to pay premium everything's better everybody likes to illustrate a really high premium for a short duration and this happened early on in the infinite banking footprint i saw last week no, you see it all the time. Yeah, because I mean they can spell IBC, you know, but but they'll they won't say it's the infinite banking concept. They'll say it's international business concepts or 
you know, <laughs> defective edges. I don't know what they, they'll change it, right? So, and they have a life insurance license and they can manipulate an illustration, right? So, um, widget, huh? intentionally defective grantor. Trust. Trust. That's what an idiot is. When yeah, I first heard a, a life insurance guy say the word idiot, I'm like, what? <laughs> what did you just say? I used to call them bullops, man. Yeah. Big old life insurance policy. I mean, if you oh, want to there you go. create acronyms, right? <laughs> I just say that, that early on. What are you doing, James? I'm going to work. What are you doing? That's such a, that's such a Texas you thing. <laughs> Bullop. Right. Oh, that's great. I thought I'd practice that live on you today since we're practicing things live. In almost four years, I have never, five years in October, I've never heard you say that. Well, that's, they used to, that's how far back it was. And you say that, no one, see, they wouldn't know what you're talking about, which is great because you didn't want to have a conversation with me. Uh, oh, yeah, I do bullets. <laughs> is that like a rollover? <laughs> well, I'm glad that you found that humor. So oh, that's great. I'm working on some of my best lines. Look. <laughs> You'd see these illustrations where there's a big premium paid for some kind of a time period, but five years, seven years, 10 years or whatever. And then the PUA is reduced, right, to the base. And so you see, uh, you know, a $10,000 base premium, the increase in cash value is 15 or 20 grand, whatever it is, a lot. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's how you do it. You've got to get to that point. Um and emphasize that increase in cash value compared to the premium paid that year. Mm-hmm. And, and it looks it looks good. It, I mean, I get it. I've seen them. I've built them. You know, if I use long-dated term, the term's going to come off. Um, yeah. And then and then it's it's then you've got the base, and the longer you pay a premium, the the longer this policy is in force, the more efficient it becomes. These life insurance policies are designed to pay a premium. Can you premium offset, i.e. have the policy make its own premiums, surrender from the PUA cash values to pay a premium? That's what's going on. Can you reduce pay up, reduce the death benefit, pay up the policy? You cannot pay another premium once that contractual right is elected. And let me just say that only with whole life insurance, whether it's a stock company or a mutual company, only with whole life insurance, do you have that contractual right to reduce pay up? Doesn't exist in any form of universal life. Doesn't exist in term. Think that through. That's a guaranteed, it's a non-forfeiture option, but it's a guaranteed contractual right you have if, so long as there's enough cash value within the policy to pay all the future premiums. You're reducing the death benefit, premiums cannot be paid, there's enough cash value in there to pay up that policy. And, And think about that. Just, oh wait, that's just one more guarantee that exists in the whole life insurance policy. And like you pointed out from Barry Dock, which I've uh, thrown out a couple of times talking about guarantees and Barry Dyke, uh, you know, was talking to use the reference or the term referring to 401k plans and things. Your toaster has more guarantees than your oh, 401k. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's so simple. It's like that'll hit you right between the eyes because nobody else is going to tell you that. Who's going to tell you that? I'm glad you brought that up. <clears throat> I, there's been some 
I've had a couple a couple client conversations, and then of course in the news, right? Because the stock market's falling off a cliff, right? Because the Fed decided to make minor, virtually invisible changes to some interest rates. Who didn't see that coming? I know. It's it's really quite mind blowing that we could go. Uh, you know, one of the. the most basic, the rate at which uh, banks lend between each other overnight could be increased by a quarter point. And that just, you know, sends Netflix tumbling 35%. It's like, that's the world we, you want to live in? I mean, when I'm asked, because sometimes I'm asked about, you know, do you do anything else or you know, in, in the market or anything? And I'm like, yeah, that's hilarious. I'm going to use that, uh, the one acronym. Uh, well, give your give your boy credit. I he like this author who gives nobody. Well, he did give Nelson Nash credit, you know, in the eighth page or third page of his article, but he didn't reference the Nelson Nash Institute or Carlos Lara I know. or Todd Lankford. No one else. Todd Lankford was he was the first one I ever heard use the word and asset. Yeah, uh, sorry. I know it's upsetting. Anyway, um, hey, don't jump over that. These are good points. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Uh, so I'll be in the market. So yeah, do I do anything in the market or you know what about crypto somebody currency? might have yeah somebody might have like accumulated some tax qualified plan money, uh, and so they'll, when they're come they'll, they'll come to me about IBC and you know their views have changed and uh, my whole I, and I keep coming back because it's it's so prevalent so often it's on the news people ask about it it's on social media it's like market 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 first of all it's not a market right to the like a, a, a meaningful market it's not you don't go to the market and Bank of America is there like playing games with the cash register, right? Like, yeah, that, they are. They're sitting there like three card money, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like not a market in the sense of a market. It's really more of a, a casino. I mean, we were, people don't go buy stock to get a dividend, right? No, we're, we're, we're speculating on the future appreciation. Okay. That's, you know, giving up some money now and that that's a zero sum game. You someone's losing, someone's winning. And you so you can't it can't be the case that everybody's going to win, right? So it can't always be a great thing for everybody at all times and all places like just let's plow in as much as In fact, the people who have relatively less information, who are busy, who have families and jobs and professions and vocations and all that. I mean, do, do you think you're going to compete with the people who have the Bloomberg, that $25,000 Bloomberg terminal, and they can trade in a... All right, wait, they pay for the space on the trading floor, the non-existent trading floor in those towers, rooms full of gigantic computers so they can front run? Yeah. Who's yeah. going to win that game? Okay, so but the, so there's all that, right? And that that's all bad enough. And But then for me... For me, and so the high frequency trading thing was a bigger, it was a much, it was a much bigger deal like a few years ago. There were the the independent, like RT and other like little uh, niche outlets on YouTube were talking about high frequency trading and how it's a, and that, that's kind of like the technocratic criticism. And okay, so fine, but for <laughs> me, it's a much more deep, uh, like it, like structural infrastructure problem. Like it, it's not. The, the pace at which things happen, the technological speed. Okay, that is what it is. Things are going to get faster and and relatively uh, 
well, relatively better capitalized people are going to be the first ones to get it, right? So the, the people who receive the new money first are going to be better equipped. It's the Matthew principle. To those who have more will be given. Like, it's just a natural way the world works. They're going to get better and better at it, and you're going to get worse and worse at it. I mean, that's kind of the setup. Government but, contractors too, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but that is what yeah. it is, right? The, but the underlying element, like the reason this whole structure occurs, the reason there's so much emphasis on the timing of the trading is because the the underlying fundamental factor, which is the supply of money, right? The rate at which that changes, that is not a market phenomenon. It's controlled by the Federal Reserve and commercial banks, right? Entities that create the supply of money. And technically, what matters is the rate at which new money is created. And that, that cause there's always new money being, it's always a positive, up, but it's the rate at which that changes. Okay, as so long as that remains arbitrary so long as it remains the providence of like of an individual person or a committee making a determination there will be recessions and depressions it's not it's not a if it's not a, a possibility it's and so people talk about and I, I even use the word business cycle risk right well a, you know there's a sense in which we could talk about risk as opposed to certainty or uncertainty, right? A risk is something that's probable. It may or may not happen. Well, what's something called when it's 100% risk? You just don't know the timing of it. Like, is that still risk? Or is it just a matter of time? It's an eventuality that there's going to be a, a, a general market correction, not just an adjustment in one stock because earnings were lower or whatever, but like a general across the, and in particular, across like particularly capital goods entities, meaning those that are high up in the structure of production, right? There's the the value to the companies is very high. That the the type of uh, labor that they have to attract to provide the kind of service is very specialized, right? Things that require borrowed money to operate. Those entities, those industries, will experience a lot of this price inflation during a boom, and then because the rate of new money creation is subject to a few particular human beings decisions the money spigot could uh, flow less quickly and the entities that rely on the debt don't get it this is what's happening right now in the tech stocks right uh that'll continue to happen it has happened that's 01 it was 08 it was it's, it's that's the business cycle. That's what Austrian economics teaches is the business cycle. Okay, so let's go ahead and marry our retirement planning to that. Sure. Sounds good to me. Because, yeah, the whole narrative is it's always going to go up. P.J. O'Rourke, yeah. the greater fool theory. Uh-huh. We only buy stocks because we think some fool in the future is going to give a greater price for it. Yeah. He's a bigger fool than you. And he's going to sell it to a bigger fool than himself. It's like it only goes one way. Only goes one way. Oh, and then wait. Uh, and I, because of Nelson Nash, I have a understanding of the Austrian business cycle theory. And it's like, what, what, wait, wait. And then these people, these committees, these unnamed individuals, not the ones you see and hear about, there's others that you don't see and you don't hear about, my humble opinion. Then they create things like, uh, you know, medical emergencies. <laughs> and then they shut down supply chains in reaction to the medical emergencies that they created in the labs. 
Now add that, <laughs> add that to the to the uh, contraction of the money supply, right? And yeah. Add that to the uh, the adjustment in which the money supply is manipulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And then, as markets are correcting, and you look at the timing of retirement, when you're dependent upon that, which you have absolutely no control over, none. How? When are you going to retire? Oh, I don't know. If I look at my statement, it won't be soon. How long are you going to be retired? I don't know. How much income do you need in retirement? I don't know. Well, if which one of you is going to go first, the husband or the wife? I don't know. Probably him, because I'm going to kill him. <laughs> how long are you going to live, and how much income will you need? I don't know. I don't know. So let's keep putting money in, right, and hope that it works out. And then when and then when there is a market correction, you know, it's like, well, I don't want to sell. And the broker's like, no, it's a paper loss. It's not realized until you pull the trigger and actually sell it. You got to stay put. Stay in the game. Well, how long does somebody that's 65 or 70, how long do they stay in the game? <laughs> I'm, I mean, it's a legitimate question. Yeah. And then it's like, I've worked my whole life putting money into this. And now I've seen it shredded three times. This is the third time. And maybe I wasn't retired in 2000. Maybe I wasn't retired in 08 and 09. Because whatever it was, it goes up. You know, your values go up from 2000. Then they get shredded. Everybody made money from 2000 to 2008. Okay, now only the brokers were taking the, you know, the accolades for it. Look how good I did for you. Look at what I, I did know. for you. Hell, the whole market. You couldn't not make money in the market. Right during those times, in 2000, 2008, goes right back down to where you were eight years ago. Your babies are growing up. You're having birthdays. Your babies are having babies. Yeah. You're getting that eight years closer to retirement. Oh, then it cracks, you, you know, and it goes up from 08 to, you know, well, there's a couple of hiccups around 2014, 2017. But now here we are, 2022. It's going to be shredded right back to what it was, or maybe. 10 or 20% above what it was in 08, which was about what it was in 2000, because you were putting money in the thing the whole time. And this is a great plan, right? (laughs) And and now you're traumatized. You're traumatized. I don't want to sell. I'm going to wait till it comes back. Yeah. Oh, there is a better way. Stockholm syndrome. It's... in mass, and we're only talking about retirement accounts. I mean, in, in, in the markets, we're not talking about all the other things that were collectively, you know, abused um, and traumatized. In yeah, and that, uh, part of me too is like we've we've bound up with the tax qualified plans. We've bound up this idea of investing with the stock market. Like that investing must mean the stock market. I mean, I I think when people think of investing, the last thing they think of is themselves. Which, oh. is, which is bizarre because you've been the most profitable thing for you. So you might start where the data would suggest you should, which is you. And and then it's, it's as if the it's like the entrepreneurial spirit has been beat out of people. It's like the idea that there could be a world where you buy the house next door or you go into business with a friend or you start you turn your hobby into a profession. Like You that, finance your brother's automobile from your life insurance policy while he's going through underwriting. Yeah, his. and they can be mundane. So like then that. they can go purchase real estate together and control the whole banking equation. Yeah. Huh. Like the, the idea that that would be like, oh, well, 
what we would do like that that's what i want to grow into and you get to do more of that as time goes on rather than have build up more and more and more and more of a balance in the stock market it's really it's, it's really perverse like there's such an illusion that it's going to work so well in the market and then there's also all of this uh enabling of the idea maybe sort of like implying it's not outright saying that you know you're kind of you're mm, too stupid you know you know you don't know enough you're not smart enough you're not a money person right you're not an expert you need to abdicate your responsibility to me become dependent upon me yeah so you're not gonna do yourself you really need a technician you know who's gonna go manage all that for you and don't you know divisional labor specialization that's gonna work out better ah it's it's really it's really unfortunate. Mr. Greg, you're just trying to sell me life insurance so you can make a big old commission. Yeah, you know, I know. Granted, the investment advisor is peeling off a half, one, 1.5, your whole entire life on hundred grand. you know, as you're saving up and then you're spending down. Just just talk about those. They don't want to talk about those. No. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. How, um, how simple is – and talk about the infinite banking concept. Becoming your own banker. I mean, now more than ever, even when the market was flying, interest rates were low, you know, a 30-year mortgage for two, 2.1, you know, what are they inching up to now, right? And then um, and, and, and then the market's going up double digits, you know, why would I, why would I put money in life insurance at that terrible rate of return? Because that's what the whole focus is on, a rate of return. And what's the, what's the interest rate on the loan? And why would I borrow my own money? Are you a licensed agent? Oh, you're oh, you're only licensed as a whole life guy. I got it. You know, can't you can't you well, you know, maybe you should consider universal life. It illustrates so much better because we can uh manipulate the illustration to produce greater than six percent, you know, internal rate of return. And uh point that out because the uh, National Association of Insurance Commissioners limited what they could illustrate a few years ago. But now there's some multiplying factors and you know, it's always it's it's just another form of manipulation, right? And I'm going to take advantage of your. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm going to help you feel dependent and inadequate, right? You don't have to spend a lot of time. You don't have to learn anything. Just look at this, you know, eight and a half by eleven page with all these numbers on there, and you're going to feel really good about that. It's the comparative, the infinite banking concept. Read a book, ninety-two pages. Read Nelson's second book. The first book is Becoming Your Own Banker. The second book, Building a Warehouse of Wealth. How Privatized Banking Really Works. Carlos Lair and Dr. Robert Murphy. And there's some other books, right? Banking with Live DVD. I don't know. There's over 100 hours on this channel. Mr. Griggs has nine hours. Is it nine hours? Eight. Eight hours. Okay. Eight hours on the mechanics of life insurance from an Austrian economist perspective. Perspective of Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept. There you go. Sounds like I should listen to that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Listen, I mean, it's free. It's at no cost. No cost. So the book, Nelson's six and a half hour DVD where he is live presenting himself, which is now available with a digital download. I saw that. Right? Now so, download. you know, how many times over the last five years have I heard a DVD or a CD? I don't even have one of those players. Your children do in the gaming <laughs> room, you know? help. <laughs> the they'll help you out. I mean, yeah. you know, wherever your games are. The game boxes. Whatever. I know. <laughs> game so boxes. Like, Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, somebody said the other day, you know, I'm like, 
I'm engaged in conversation with another younger person, and they're like, I'm, I'm dropping what you're picking up. I speak English. I know what that means. And what I actually heard was, I have no vested interest in what you're saying, but I hear you talking. No kidding. Okay. So <laughs> I'm just saying, you are worth the education. Your family is worth the education. Spend some money. Spend some time. Avoid the click funnels. Do your own homework, legitimate homework. And the homework is not going out onto the big wide world and the internet and getting the consensus. You know, my friend Joe Kane, years ago, he said, you know, if Christopher Columbus would have done some research before he set out, his research would have told him the world was flat. Because it wasn't research. Nobody nobody knew. It was a gathering of the consensus. Mm. Right, it's not research. You know, uh, reading an article like this is rehashed from all the other artic- articles and writers that this man has taken from is not necessarily research. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, you know, people, you know, write things all the time, produce things all the time that are like, you know, pretty good, but could have been better if you cite your sources and kinds of things. Huh? It's promotional. It's very promotional. It's like you can avoid all that and go straight to the horse's mouth. Read what Nelson wrote. Right. And then in the NNI practitioners program, are they perfect in there? No, but they're there to learn and to practice the infinite banking concept as Nelson um, created it. So at least that sets them apart, in my opinion. I mean, I agree that there should be some house cleaning. I don't know. Don't get me going on that. I'm just saying, <laughs> avoid. You can avoid the click funnels. You know the. Anyway, um, and it's worth investigating. And then the simplicity. Let me pay a premium. Give me some discipline. It's going to come around every year or every month. I'm not going to be mesmerized by all of these fancy presentations. I'm going to build capital. The cash value is a derivative of the premium. Pay the premium. They're designed. Life insurance policies are designed for a premium to be paid. That's what accumulates a cash value that you have a contractual right to control. Oh, my gosh. You don't have enough capital. I don't have enough capital. So how about we get to accumulating capital? Capital formation may be more important than on than, than comparing the interest rates on loans. And, and mm. oh, my gosh. I mean, how much of that do you want? Build capital. Capital attracts opportunity. So if I have a life insurance plan, it's going to mirror my life. It's my life insurance policy, right? It's going to mirror my life. Oh my gosh, it has an exponential curve in there. All I have to do is pay a premium and then take advantage of opportunities or things that I was going to purchase anyway and collateralize that policy. I'm in control. I'm not thinking about, you know, uh, how to avoid a premium. I'm not thinking about how to get some kind of a tax scheme or loophole. I'm not trying to go get an investment in cryptocurrency or anything else, which I'm not saying that those things are not worth looking at. I'm building capital for me that I have access to that's going to benefit me and my family. If I want to do all these other things, it's going to take capital anyway. So do I want to control that whole function, the banking function? And it's yes. So I have discipline. I have simplicity. I have clarity. Oh, what? Oh my gosh. What is that word? You know, it's like all these tax qualified plans. When I die, look at all the loop, not loopholes, but all the hoops that your beneficiaries have to jump through. And every time the tax code changes, it's like, if I die, somebody's going to get a check tax free. How simple is that? 
death certificate. Oh my gosh. And we've they, talked we've talked before too about how people want to make things complicated. And I think one of the you know, it is so simple. One thing I've encountered recently among some clients is like a frustration with not understanding how they're going to go use a loan right away. And that's an interesting conversation because it's like to, for that to even be a holdup is it's not common, but it happens. You know, what do I go use loans for? How do I, I don't know. how do I make this better? Well, it's going to be the, and, the, and you know, the people who are asking that question mm -hmm. are people who are doing well, right? So there's not a lot of outside debt. If any income is relatively high, mm -hmm. Parkinson's law has been soundly defeated. There's a lot of savings. There's cash in the bank, right? It's like, okay, well, I'm going to put money. I'm going to take some money from over here. I got plenty, right? I'm going to take some money from over here. I'm going to put it in premium. Well, then what? Well, do it again, you know, like keep going. And I don't know, you know, and, and I've, I'm thinking of one guy in particular. I kind of challenged him a little bit, and I didn't think he appreciated it, but I'm like, this sounds like a failure of imagination. Like, it could be that the thing— You know, thing, love truth goes a long way. Yeah. It could be that the thing that you should be doing really involves an investment up front that has a few zeros after it. And so maybe the urgency to accumulate capital is much greater— than what we're even thinking of. And in fact, it is in his particular situation. Premium should be higher, but it's It always okay. is. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And, but and so it'll be, and I think it finally dawned. It's like, he doesn't have to, I get this constantly. Not constantly. It seems like constantly. You know, I can get to money for the auto loan at 2.9. I'm going to get a policy loan at five. And, and so he wanted to go through the whole thing about, okay, well, well calculating volume by interest or interest by volume, right? The, calculating the true interest costs, figuring out how much in dollar payments you're spending, backing out the cash price of the vehicle. That's the amount financed. Divide that into the principal. There's your rate in volume terms. And by the way, it's a lot higher than the nominal rate on the conventional note. And the rate by volume on the policy loan is lower than the nominal rate. Okay, so they're categorically distinct, can't compare them anyway, but even if you tried, they're- <laughs> Oh, and there's lots of efforts in the big wild world trying to compare. And that's the game, and, that, and we even, I get this, oh it's, his name's Jared, is what I'm talking about, I've talked to you about Jared. And maybe some interest in being an agent too. And so we've talked about like the calculators, well, how can we show that, you know, you gotta show it to somebody. And I'm like, you can do that, I don't. People do do that. It can be illustrative to some people, but I think there's a, a, a very serious extent to which it limits someone's thinking. Like if we're dwelling on how to squeeze every dime out of the lending arrangement to drive the car, what are we missing, right? Because maybe it's the, the business around the corner. I mean, what else is there that's out there? It seems like there's just a, uh, not a full accounting of the magnitude of the possibility that can come when we do have a lot of capital. And I think it's just such a foreign idea that, to people because it's, we've just not been raised in an environment where net worth rises annually, period. Right? That's just not yeah. the environment we're raised in. And so that the kind of thinking that comes... You, you sort of get a stratification. You have people who have money and then those who don't, right? And the people who have it may be more likely to think in terms of opportunity that requires large, cap, large amounts of capital up front. Whereas people who came from or are in places where they're not well capitalized don't think that way because they didn't have the capital. And neither did their parents or their grandparents. And I think it, I think that's really the 
the investment opportunity is literally that. I think it's developing an awareness of what is possible when you're well capitalized and in determining what well capitalized means for you. Exactly. Like how much money is that? Is it 500 grand? Is it a million? Is it five, 10? Yeah, and I think there are certain people, everybody's different. We could all use more capital, no question, but the opportunities that are attracted, like the, the, the capital level that's required for different people in order to attract opportunities, I think is different. Right, somebody could get their hands on fifty grand, and for them, they're like, "Oh, I can go to town. I'll, I'll go do this and that." And that. Uh, somebody else is like, 50 grand. Like, add a couple of zeros because yeah. I got the, the opportunity. I'm thinking of is this company that I want to go buy. Right. Right. Um, so the number is going to be different for different people, and which is why more is just always better. You know, the uh, uh, the that's mind. investment advising. Like, I mean, that's <laughs> the mind cannot foresee its own advance. The future is unknown. When's the market going to come back? I don't know. It'll go up and down until it ends. When are you going to retire? Oh, I don't know either. How much are you going to need? I don't know either. You know, the point is, how much capital can you form today? How much capital formation can you put into motion today? Right? And think big. It's your money. Right, it's your capital. It's you. It's your, your family. Yeah. Right. It's your future that is unknown. Nobody's had too much access to capital except for these gnomes that rule the world. They create it. That's immoral. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you at the you and me level. You've never had too much capital. So get to it. I don't care what they. It doesn't matter what the number is. Whether you know you need a million dollars per opportunity or ten million or ten thousand. It doesn't matter. You know, and I, and I know all over the internet, you know, there's these great big illustrations, you know, these great big premiums. And it's like, okay. I mean, it makes it for easy math and you can move the decimals either way. And I love the point that there's like, it's like if you just focus on automobiles, you're kind of, I'm alluding to your comments earlier, that it's like, I, I, can, I can get out of debt. I can finance automobiles. I can finance education. I can... Maybe I'm not going to finance a dang thing because I bought everything that I'm ever going to buy. I don't know that guy. But let's say they exist. Maybe someday I want to give money away. Maybe someday I just want to take passive income. I don't know because the future is unknown. It's like, and if you got to take money out of here, you've accumulated that systematically or sporadically. And here, if you don't own and control that and somebody else has uh, the gatekeeper to that or is the gatekeeper to that, maybe that's not the best place for you. So what if I let it accumulate in a life insurance policy, paying big premiums, and I'm not going to finance a dang thing? Okay. I got a honking death benefit. Maybe my people in the future will finance something. Well, maybe I just want to take passive income. Maybe I want to do both. Maybe yeah. I want to take passive income, give it away, and leave a tax-free death benefit. I, I think the person who's in the position where they're paying high premiums, like they're in, they get it, but they don't readily see a use for a policy loan. Mm-hmm. Because the implicit little thing is that is that because there's enough cash around to pay for what they're paying yeah, for already, right, right. yeah, which probably means the premium's not high enough. Get that? Yeah. That's a great observation. Listen, and whenever you, whomever you are, and thank you for listening, I really appreciate that um, 
This channel has grown organically over the years without a single purchase of a single like or a single comment or a single view. Thank you. Right. Um, the the. Uh, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. Dang it. Somebody with a who oh, yeah, yeah. doesn't need to get take a policy loan. Yeah, you got all the money, right? You got all the capital, whomever you are, and you don't need to borrow money. And you see, you just participate in this for any length of time. Then you quickly see it's like, oh, my gosh, what's my insurability? How much will the life uh, insurance underwriters give me or say, okay, enough. I can have? Not enough. Not enough. And then you and then and then what? I mean, if you solved you're really if you solve for your need for banking, you're gonna wind up with more death benefit than the underwriters are gonna give you. Now if you have all the capital, right, and you don't you don't you're not financing anything, but you pay a premium and now you've got this asset that's like a tax free pre engineered tax free trust. I'm not giving legal advice, I'm describing the characteristics of life insurance. Where else do you wanna put your money? I don't know and I don't really care. I'm just saying there's a lot of things that you can, you know, this guy references uh, unnoted uh, Carlos Lara's article on the 17 characteristics of the perfect investment. There's all kinds of places you can put your money, right? But my point is, once you put your money into a life insurance policy, and there is no need for financing that you can see currently, or even in the future, you've already thrown the bankers out of your life, right? You're not dependent upon a third-party lender. You're accumulating all this capital within life insurance policies you own. And when you watch what happens to the life insurance policy over time, because it goes up in value every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The markets aren't even open on Sunday, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, how much can I put in? Do you have many people? I'm sure you do. I don't know. This is another, you're going to throw me under the bus live? It's not under the bus. <laughs> no. Do you I'm have fine. many clients who they're fully insured and in fact, they don't there's nobody in their life in whom they have a usable insurable interest anymore like they're full up yes okay where's the the i think the let me put it in terms of so i have a client who that's now his situation and i just had a talk with him a couple weeks ago so he's older higher income understands ibc thoroughly paying a correspondingly high uh premium not a lot of family not a lot of business partners and the, you know he has done business activities in the past but now just the nature of his income generation there's not a lot of these entities where you've got shared value and you're going to go insure the business partner so there's really not insurable interest there to just go get another policy right it's like one of these examples of they say we'll just go get another, you know just go get another policy it's like well maybe not okay so he's not so to my mind what came to mind and I know I'm constantly bringing this, feels like I'm constantly bringing this up, but is, and you, what made me think of it is when you said life insurance is like a trust. And Nelson, that's how Nelson described it. It's like a trust. Pre engineered tax free trust. Trust is to go get another trust and to put, so this is where the. Oh, to get an irrevocable irre trust. Irrevocable trust. Yeah, comes in. You're still going to have a challenge with the underwriter because that is still on his life. You know, I'm not saying it can't be done. Right? And and I appreciate you life insurance underwriters that listen and you home office people, whether you're a stock company or a mutual company, I appreciate you listening. Okay. I think I do think it's definitely a challenge to get insurable interest established yeah. in the trust 
situation. I'm going through it now with another client. They're doing the church. It's like, okay, well, who, hopefully this goes through. I'm, I'm hoping it does, but you know, who to insure in the church and, so it's like, it'd be like and the, a, the preacher, the deacon, the board, the 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 elders, whatever right. that structure is, all right. of them. Yeah, all of them. The donors, the donors, right? So I'm gonna know. have to. By the, I mean, because the the allowable death benefit in the whole charitable context is limited. Is not big at no. all. So it's even it's difficult still. Thank goodness the 7702 shredded the death benefit so they could still pay high premium. <laughs> There's an extension which that is helpful, right? Because if well, the, you have is. the same insurability death benefits but or insurability levels and your premium buys less death benefit, now we can pay more premium. Yeah. And that is a good thing. Um, but, but even – but just – for instance, a donor has to have a pattern of giving yes. of at least three years before – the recipient organization has an insurable interest in the donor's life. Right. Okay, so say you go do the trust thing, you know, you're full up, you're paying all your premium into all your IBCs, and that's good. And there's still more money coming in, stacking up in somebody else's bank, owned by somebody else. All the problems that lack of lack of maximum control over the banking fund. You control what you can given your policy infrastructure. Cash is still stacking up the bank. Okay, so you want to move it into something that you own and control. Great. Irrevocable charitable trust. Maybe. Other kinds. Not legal advice. Money's there. Or tax advice. Or tax advice. Now We're just selling bullets. I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> now money's there. Okay, it would be great if it could be in in insurance in that other environment. Like that would be like, oh, like even better. But does he have any policies that would make sense? And I'm not talking about churning and replacement as a as a, a method or pattern. But does he have any other existing life insurance is not worth keeping? How about that? Fair question. You mean so assigning ownership of one from him personally to the trust? Uh, no, you mentioned that earlier. Right, T- taking ownership from him to a trust. No, I'm saying does he? I'm asking, does he have any like universal life or term? Oh life no, everything. Anything? Yeah. It's all pure, not good <laughs> IVC style. Yeah, no term. Nothing that needs to be replaced or eliminated. You know, and I know that. Uh, Listen, I've said it, and I'm not I'm not uh, patronizing. You know, I really do appreciate the listeners, even some of the critics that uh, don't know what they're doing, but they're struggling to try to figure it out. You know, I appreciate you too. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, when you a little bit of truth goes a long way, is what I said earlier. You know, here we were just two guys talking about the infinite banking concept, Nelson Nash, and what impact uh, he put in our lives and and talking about this and that this the truth produces produces clients like ryan's referring to fully insured i want to pay more premium how can i get it past the underwriter i want you agent or advisor to think that through okay so yeah but look, I mean, it's the natural, to my mind. It is. I had this conversation with them a few weeks ago, and we're just having a conversation, as we do. And it occurred to me, this is where things are going to go. Like this, if anybody who regularly, diligently practices dividend-paying whole life over the course of their income-generating lifetime will become fully insured, it's a matter of time. And... Maybe God doesn't give him enough time, and so it doesn't become a problem. But I going to blame God with long. Well, he's the one calling you home. Well, I don't know. Maybe the guy had some, you know, activities that expedited that whole process. Sure, sure. 
But with my point is that with enough time and enough premium, you're going to get to the fully yes. insured level. And there really should be, just to my mind, from a capital retention, maximization, optimization kind of thing, there's got to be an answer for that money that's coming in that's not I hear you. remaining under one's control. So your work is uh, undone, sir. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, wait, then then I don't need to retire. But I, I think that's I need the to answer. turn some magical age and then take myself out of service. Right? If you don't do it, who will? Right. I'm just saying your work's undone. What do you, what do you, you're. Well, yes. Okay. For, <laughs> I, well taken. But for me, and but yeah, for him too. Like, and he does, this yeah. particular client does mentoring for young men who are coming up in his particular, I think it's like civil engineering or something. And he, so he's already has that initial and that's also the type back. of client you attract agent advisor the people that are benevolent and help other people and have other people's best interests at heart think that through those yeah. are the kind of people that you want on your calendar those are the kind of people that you look forward to speaking to and they're calling you and so here's a bizarre like closing the so circle that started almost <laughs> an hour and 20 minutes ago is the tax thing mm -hmm. We talk all these CPAs, all the deductions, all the, you know, you, you get shave off a little smidget amount for your tax qualified plan yeah. for everything. Whereas you go to the charitable giving world, the allowable deductions are huge, like really, really big compared to everything that the entire accounting yeah. the industry is emphasizing. Your on. contributions. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, so, too. So to me, it's like, if we're going to play the tax game, like, and not even being condescending about it, like, if we're going to legitimately minimize or manage our tax liability, why aren't we having a conversation about charitable activities and incorporating that into somebody's like their own That sounds a little accusatory. I have those conversations all the time. I'm just saying. Well, in general, I, I know I get where you're. I completely agree with you. Why in that conversation happening every day across the country? Well, hell, why in the Nelson Nash Institute seminar going on every weekend across yeah. the country? And I want to be clear too. I'm not saying, although one could say it this way, I'm not saying. <laughs> I'm not saying. An, <laughs> I'm not saying a charity that you don't control. I think people think, oh, I'm going to give to a charity. I'm going to go give to the Goodwill. Or I'm going to give yeah. to the church. Good okay, do that. Mm -hmm. But you can also create one that you control. Mm -hmm. Like, why isn't that? That is never talked about in the IBC world. Uh, it's never talked about in conventional planning. I don't know. I think That's we supposed talk to be about it all the time. So. All the time is a bit of an overstatement. I don't know about that. I don't think it comes up often enough. Well, I agree with that too, but uh, because then we would. Get I mean, into a you and I talk about that regularly. Well, yeah. Uh, okay, that's so. not normal. Oh, that's not usual conversations. Well, I didn't want to be land. normal anyway. So, okay, no, it's a very good point and well taken. You know, and the answer is I don't know. I mean, whenever you spend, uh, I don't say day after day, but dang near day after day at a fundamental level, helping people. Uh, expand their thinking about what can be done at a very basic fundamental level. You know, all these automobiles that you're driving, all of that interest that you're paying for the mortgage. Yeah. You know, all of the credit card, you know, all these lines of credit. So, 
I think as this continues to grow into mainstream, I just wish people would give Nelson Nash credit. You know, I keep going back to this article that we're not going to get through, but it's a very, it's a relatively good article. I don't want to disparage it at all, but um, I think as it becomes more and more mainstream, because you know, people uh, can get past the word life insurance, right? And, And it's more embraced. Because people are actually doing it and experiencing it. I think the conversations, you know, it's a matter of time. I hope it's a matter of time before these conversations aren't happening every day. You know, I think it's a matter of time until they actually do happen every day. Yeah. Well, and there, but there's an extent, and I'm not, I know that some of the conversations, the IBC part, that the, the initial, you know, wrapping your mind around paying a big old premium and cash value, I, I, that is happening. It does happen all the time. I'm agreeing. I'm talking about the casting the mind into the future where we're to a point where, okay, all that's full up. We've executed that over the course of now what? All right. Because there's still more to control. There's still more to harness. There's still more to secure for your family's future. What's that look like? And if that's part of the consideration, does that have implications for what we're doing at present? Because if there is a different kind of end game, what effect, if any, not saying there's necessarily any particular, anything would change now, but theoretically there could be. And that's the part I'm still working through. It's like, okay, if that is the case that we're looking down the road, there's going to be a, we're going to hit fully insured at some point. We're going to incorporate another entity or something to continue to mitigate taxes and retain control over capital in some form and this is the way to do it and here are the various advantages in a tax sense to doing that if that's where we're going what it what if anything does it mean for what we're doing right now and i think i think that the way that that's the conversation that's not happening right because if that were that just a I got into this about like this 90 minutes in with a client the other day who just wanted to, I'm like, tell me when to stop. Cause I was in a mood yeah. and I'll go on. And so we finally get into this and I, it's like, okay, it's, it all, it's all at the end of the day, in one sense, it's all an income thing, right? If there's, if we can't, if we're not fully insured, meaning we're not paying the maximum amount of premium. Well, the primary reason for that is that we don't have the money to pay the premium. Okay, so there's a sense in which there's a certain income threshold after which the considerations can change. Because as you've said, and as I tell clients, as the income level rises, the percentage of it that goes to premium should increase too, up to the point where you're paying so much on a regular basis that you're fully insured. And by the way, eventually this compounds the problem. Well, not really a problem. Compounds the situation even further. Eventually term writers fall off. Eventually those big old premiums that we're paying now at a maximum are not going to be payable, but the insurance will stay in force. So now there's going to be 30 years, 35, 40 years from now, a big old increase in free cash flow. I'm assuming you don't go retire, right? Assuming that cash flow continues to some degree, which I wish people would think that is the goal instead of retiring. But so if there's, if cash is continuing to come in from some source and hopefully you've had control over capital for 20 to 40 years and you've acquired some assets that produce a cash flow, like that wouldn't hurt, right? Or start a business or something. So hopefully there is some cash flow going after PUA has fallen off. Okay. Where's that money go? 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I would think that, you know, what am I going to do today? You know, and what are my actions that I'm taking today? How are they going to affect? You know, and at the end of the day, I don't know. I do know that, um, and I believe, and I operate from this basis, that you literally can't pay enough premium. Can't be done. Physically, I agree. It literally cannot be done. All right, and so whenever, in my mind, um, whenever, let's say we got to that point where I'm fully insured, I cannot get another, you know, policy issued on my life. I can't get another policy issued on, I mean, uh, on employees, key man, key person, whatever. That I'm, I'm out. I'm tapped out. Nobody will sell me their life insurance policy because it's not good for them, even though they don't want to pay a premium, and I can write a check faster than you can get the surrender value from a life insurance company. Um, you know, what do you do then? I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm gifting money to these young men or these young people that I'm mentoring and encouraging them, because that would be income to them, to go practice the infinite banking concept. I see. Until until the the answer becomes apparent, you know, it's like, oh, this is what you should do. You know, I don't know. Give give the IRS more Investing time. Investing in others. Yes. Here, because you know, look, if you if you give me fifteen thousand a year, if you give or whatever, you give your children, your grandchildren a gift, right? That gift if if is can be used to support premium. Right, the life insurance companies are okay. Well, yeah, you earn you know twenty five thousand a year, but oh, I see your mom and dad are giving you, you know, eighteen thousand a year, whatever the annual gift exclusion is, and then they're gift splitting, so it's now, you know, thirty six thousand a year plus my twenty five thousand. That's a substantial income for a young person. Now twenty five times that, you know, is the death benefit you can have, and then work backwards from there. Now and then, and that's just a child. I mean, it could. You know, I mean, we can do could be anybody that'd be a kid, yeah, yeah. And then, and now, so I'm mentoring while I'm mentoring, you know, I'm mentoring, mm. uh, leading the way, encouraging their thinking to expand, and then, you know, creating habits, right? That maybe they would carry on, you know, it's like it's like what you do matters, mm-hmm. whether you know people are watching or not. So, there could be a this is very interesting. You're going to throw me another curveball, G? Yes. Okay. And tell me when to stop, but there could be- uh, I've got plenty of time. I'm I'm already halfway into my vacation. I'm not leaving (laughs) until 8 a.m. in the morning. There could be, what we're saying is I could see a scenario where there is an incentive insofar as we're talking about creating an insurable interest in, for instance, mentoring young people through something like a charitable trust. Oh, ha- now you're even adding another entity into the, into the equation. Well, it helps them. Well, maybe they started a company that the charitable entity owns, and then there's key pers- key people mm-hmm. in the business. I'm just spitballing here, you know, yeah. off the cuff. Okay, a key person that has to be demonstrated too. Just because you have an employee doesn't mean they're a key person, right? But maybe the maybe the charitable organization um, requires. Uh, contributors maybe not maybe they're contributing time we can put a value on their time then there exists an insurable interest you know I mean I don't know it's an infinite for a reason the infinite banking concept you're only limited for what's between your ears mm-hmm. right 
and banking is, banking's happening everywhere. It's just, you know, the world we live in, we're all inundated with information, you know, everybody's schedule is full, you know, and I mean, time is like, it seems like time crushes you when you're working and, and even when you're not, just go retire and tell me how much extra time you have. I'm just saying. The, 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 the ability sometimes to decompress and think some of these things through mm-hmm. that may not give you immediate gratification or immediate clarity. I mean, very powerful. You know, so why would you want to retire? Why would you want to cease to produce? You wouldn't. Yeah, you would. So, and you're young anyway. I don't know. I think you can figure this out before you become out of service. I've got some pretty good, I think, well, I mean, you it's going to be, you know, because I went and did some of this myself and it does feel weird. You know, you're going to the notary to have pay somebody seven dollars to watch you sign a piece of paper that's cheap and that creates a that creates your entity right it's like you're looking over your shoulder <laughs> anybody yeah about like the first time you paid a life insurance premium got passing underwriters and you're like where's the hammer right what's wrong yeah and it took me four years before i quit looking over my shoulder paying premium it like, feels what's wrong? weird what I it's so different yeah. Yeah. And then the, the notary's like, oh, what are you doing? If they even care to ask, they're just notarizing your signature. I get it. I told her. And she's I know. Like, and then they're just like, huh? what? <laughs> charitable shit. I don't give anything away anyway. I collect everything. I'm a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> and there's other layers to this. Like you get into compensation law and like what kind of compensation packages can the charitable now you're just on, Now you're talking about a charitable entity and all of the benefits of in. Of, of one existing and you participating in it at several levels. I don't want to be esoteric, but, you know, it's like um, if the churches, you know, these are these are great uh, questions and examples and thought provokers. If the churches, I, I mean, I live in a little old town. I grew up in a little town 20 miles north of here. I, I mean, 40 years ago, there were 37 churches in that community or around the community. Mm-hmm. You know, there's got to be 70 now. I don't know. I mean, yeah. if the churches would just get pace, get past Dave Ramsey and the get out of debt, you know, and get off of this idea that life insurance is bad, and they participated at a, at a minimal level, minimal. the infinite banking concept, it would change their congregation. They would probably outlaw churches. <laughs> I'm just saying that it's like, oh, we're dependent upon your your. Don't get me going. I'm going through that now with the client. He's got a you know, senior pastor's a friend, and we've got some the the client that who regularly gives to the church is willing to pay the premium. Well, why don't you hook him up with your other guy that can run through all of those spreadsheets and and <laughs> and go through all the numbers for the board of the deacons and you know. Is I've that had, what it takes? I don't know. I uh, no, I don't know. I mean, I have I a lot of. Not. <laughs> I don't really, I'm not disparaging <laughs> preachers, pastors, evangelists, uh, you know, bishops or popes, and I'm, I'm not. Um, they have a strange relationship at best with like financial. Well, matters. You, you think this through. This this dawned on me. My country bumpkin self. You know, I'm like, why well, wouldn't anybody and everybody do this? And a and a dear friend now and a client. I mean, he he said James. He said, you know, I don't know how many deacons or I don't even know what they call them, elders, deacons, you know, board members. There's like three out of the 10 are investment advisors and right life insurance. 
I'm like, good. Can't they read too? Right? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? But it's very. Uh, they're involved, yeah. The yes. real estate gurus involved, and the local accountants involved. Oh yeah, oh the real estate. Oh my gosh, IBC and real estate. Let's click on IBC and real estate and all of it. And he- I could go on and on. I love real estate. I like real estate. If I didn't do what I do now, I'd probably just travel. I wouldn't even do real estate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just. It, it's like. And I don't want to point out everything that's wrong in the world. I mean, by God, it's evident if you just pay attention. So I don't have to point it out mm-hmm. or shine a light on it. I'll just be the best light that I can be, okay? But when you talk about real estate and infinite banking, you know, it's like all of these real estate experts all of a sudden now are life insurance experts. It's another tool in the toolbox. Yeah, another arrow in the quiver. Or how about the, uh, the online marketer? that has a gazillion followers doesn't know come here from Sikkim about life insurance but it sounds good and he's getting they're getting paid they're revenue sharing as an unlicensed individual and I'm not even promoting the idea that the state is going to grant you an exception to a law via license so you can have that conversation as well I'm just saying where does it end it doesn't so for you the listener who wants to become your own banker or learn about the infinite banking concept Go to the source, okay? The Nelson Nash Institute, Becoming Your Own Banker, the book, the six-and-a-half-hour DVD series, the video series, Nelson himself. I mean, I know I've said it two or three times, but it's okay. Um, You know, we get pushed back all the time. These y'all are talking for an hour and 35 minutes. Like, it's too long, James. Well, I get it. I speak slow. Press two times the speed, okay? (laughs) Cut it up. Listen to 20 minutes at a time. Do what you got to do. It's worth it. Yeah. Please do. And then please become a client because I really enjoy these complicated cases where (laughs) how do we, I find it very fun and like creative, creatively demanding. And I I just think there's a. a, How complicated of a case would you like? uh, I'll take a challenge. I mean, let's. Yeah. I'm willing to uh, lose money on the really complicated cases to learn and to be like, yeah, I did that. It's happened before. I mean, it was the f- whole first part of my time in this business was just suffering. <laughs> <laughs> suffering. <laughs> uh, but no, they're really fun. And I think that at the end of all of this is a, a very compelling, much deeper approach to overall financial strategy than what the conventional industry provides. I mean, I, I get, trust me, I get that IBC is already a, the alternative for sure. A the. Yeah. But you add the tax management element, uh, tempered as it is by a healthy disdain for tax qualified plans and all that normal stuff. Um, I think there could be some interesting results. Let's put it that way. Uh, no question. I mean, <clears throat> No question. I, I agree. Um, in every case, doesn't have to be complicated. You know, the I think most are not. Most are not. But every in everyone's situation is different. That's what I love. I love people, and I love math or numbers. You know, and uh, the paperwork can, you know, kiss my. <laughs> but it's required. I get it. 
Um, and I have great people in here that does like paperwork like you can't believe. Um, I'm just saying I love people and I love the relationship of numbers, right? And I love I love the infinite banking concept. And a lot of times and you kind of alluded to it earlier, like this newsletter, you know, teachers, trainers, promoters try to uh, really talk about sometimes very complicated, you know, concepts or structures or ideas. And then that is so creates a perceived value. It's so complicated. It's like, I got to pay for that. Um, and I'm not interested in that. I'd like, Simplicity is a virtue. Mm-hmm. Brevity is a virtue. Well, hell, James, get to it. I got it. <laughs> I'm just saying that every case is unique, and some are complicated without great big numbers. You know, because of the the yeah. the multiple of Family of what's going on. You yeah. know, um, and I love solving problems. I love that. Yeah. So when you can take a complicated, a seemingly complicated case. And get to a legitimate, bona fide solution without paralyzing somebody or making them feel less than or inadequate or ignorant. Mm-hmm. Um, and you actually bring a solution with simplicity and clarity. It's like, yeah, I love it. I agree. Well, listen, you go I'm eat. Satisfied. I'm going to keep talking. Okay. I'm sure you are. <laughs> Good catching up. Thanks for listening. Talk to you all next time. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content. 